0: Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. It is our custom to stand for the reading of the word. It's one of the ways we just honor the word of God and say, God, your word is really important. We don't wanna uh, live our lives by our own design or by our own conception of what you say, but actually by what you say, amen? So um, we're here in 1 Samuel 16, and we did the last half two weeks ago, and now we're on the second half of Samuel 16. So everybody with me, 14 through most of 23. Let's do it. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And David came to Saul and entered his servant, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. That's it. Lord, we just thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is um, vast that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your ways than our ways. And God, let this be a Sunday where your ways are revealed to us. Your kingdom is revealed to us. Your nature is revealed to us. And ultimately, the redemption of Jesus Christ for us is revealed to us in Jesus name we pray amen amen you can be seated thank you Heidi all right church um welcome and thank you online guys our friends online in Charleston our team in Charleston and our team in Toronto welcome welcome in we're excited about what God is doing in those places uh, last week if you didn't get a chance to we had our friend Sean Foyt in And it was a really great service. How many people were here for Sean last week? If you didn't, I highly, highly, highly recommend listening to that message. It was so encouraging just about the... You know, there is a war that we're engaged in as believers. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and every lofty thing that lifts itself up against Jesus, right? So we're in a war, but Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy above his brothers, it says in the book of Isaiah, and that there is a baseline as believers that we walk in joy and peace and grace because we've been given great great grace by a great God. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I think that's it for, as far as announcement, other than my beautiful wife is going to be preaching next week, and I just want you just guys to just cheer through the entire message, just nonstop cheering, throwing money at her, you know, purses, I'm sure, <laughs> stilettos, that would be dangerous. No, um, that's going to be great. She has something in her heart for you. And, and I, I um, have something this morning for you as well. This is going to be a very intense message, and um, and pastors don't like to preach intense messages for a couple of reasons, because intense messages do not grow the church. Intense messages do grow the believer. Intense messages do not grow the church. They do grow the believer. And so one of the reasons that we do consecutive exegetical which is a a nonsense big academic word for we don't skip the scriptures we just preach through the scriptures is that we don't miss the hard stuff in the scripture and when you just read line by line you have to come in confrontation with the hard things in scripture and you have to look at them and say am I that kind of person God am I that kind of Pharisee am I that kind of hypocrite and we have a church culture that just wants to preach that you're not that person. That you said a prayer and now in Christ you're a hero for all of your days. And perhaps we are not. Perhaps we are not. Hosea chapter 8 verse 1. It says, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and they have rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, my God, Israel, we know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue them. And so Hosea chapter eight, Hosea is saying that a, that a vulture is over the house of the Lord. A vulture is a, is a creature that its job in the world is to eat dead things. Because if dead things spread, then death spreads. And God is opposed to death spreading. Genesis chapter 3, you see God place an angel at the garden, at the gate, for for death to stop spreading. It says this, it says, set the trumpet to your lips. Hosea, the prophet, is going against what all of the other prophets are saying, because they're all declaring blessing and favor and prosperity. If you look at it like a a website like Elijah List, you know, it's a big charismatic website. There's all these prophetic words on it. Every single time I get there, every single message is like, God loves you so much. He's going to prosper you so much every day, all day long. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? That's not the only message in the Bible. And it says this, it says there's a vulture who's seated to eat dead things over the house of Israel, the, the people of God, and this is what the people of God say. They say, to me, they cry out, my God, Israel, we know you. It's like saying, it's like saying, it says, my God, we, Israel, know you. It's like me saying, God, I, I know you. I'm, 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 in the, I'm in the team, I show up every Sunday, I tithe, I know you, God, it's me, David, it's, it's me! And he's saying, no, you don't know me. You have crafted an image of me and it's not the real me. You have turned me into a heavenly vending machine that only pumps out blessings for you because you said a prayer one time. And that is heresy. I didn't know this um, until my friend from Toronto, Daniel, sent me a piece from A.W. Tozer and he said, A.W. Tozer says that the word heretic, it doesn't mean someone who has taken a, a demonic cult and brought it into the church and said, hey everybody, this is the new Christianity. A heretic is someone, the word actually means someone who picks and chooses. So I pick out only the things that make me feel comfortable and I get rid of all the rest of it. And that is what a heretic is, someone who picks and chooses. And that is why when we read a scripture like this, that says, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him, we have to say the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Tozer said, the man who is seriously convinced that he deserves hell is not likely to go there the man who believes that he is worthy of heaven will certainly never enter that blessed place. It is my proposition that we have a church in the United States of America that deeply believes that it deserves to go to heaven. And Tozer says, if that is your perspective, it is not likely that you will find your way there. Verse 14 of Samuel 16. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. There's this contrast, we just hit 16, and we've just spent the last 16 chapters of this book with Saul, and we've seen him as a person that was called by God in his time and in his season. He was anointed by the prophet. He acted heroically on behalf of God, but he was in a consistent life of sin. Now, the contrast is actually incredible because on the one hand, we have David who's going to transition and take the throne and we'll spend the next few months with David. David actually commits more egregious sins before God, but his heart is always repentant. Saul commits consistent sins before God and believes he is righteous, and that is is the vast difference between the two men. One's heart that was willing to say, God, I'm not where I should be. And the other guy who says, oh, I'm exactly where I should be. I'm in charge. I've got, I'm tall and handsome. You put me in charge, and I've got everything together. And that's a dangerous place to be. I propose that Saul, in this story, is a local archetype of the eternal destiny of many people. An archetype is a blueprint. An archetype is a pattern. And you see patterns throughout scripture and they apply to certain individuals or certain peoples in the future. The archetype of Abraham is a man who left his father's house and left everything he knew and left his structure of being and how to function, and he went and followed God into the unknown and was blessed by God because of his obedience. That is the archetype of faith. That's what we all do. We all leave our place where we have it together and say, I don't have it together. I need you, Jesus, and I'm following you with my whole life. That's the archetype of faith. The archetype of sin is the life, this is, let me clarify this. This is not for the unbeliever. I'm not preaching to unbelievers today. This is an archetype of faith for the people of God that have turned their hearts away from him. You know, Kaiser Soze um, in the movie, The Usual Suspects, how many of you guys have seen that movie? Classic, great Bible study film, great. (laughs) Kaiser Soze is walking away. He's the devil. The Kaiser Soze is he's the devil, but they don't think he's the devil. They just think he's this weak kind of pathetic creature. But he's masterminding the death of everyone and destruction and, and, and hell for all of these people. And as he walks away from the police station after he convinces the police that he's not Kaiser Soze, he says this phrase, he says, um, the greatest trick the devil ever played on the world was to making him was making them believe he did not exist. I thought if that's true, the greatest trick that the Satan ever played on the church is to make her believe that if the churchgoer said a prayer, they are safe forever, and that hell doesn't exist for them. Hell doesn't exist for the churchgoer that said a prayer. It is the greatest trick that the devil ever played on the church. It strips the church of the fear of God. It strips the church of the righteousness of God. It strips the church of the judgment of God. And instead of magnifying God, it diminishes who he is. God's grace is unfathomable, as is the justice of God. We often sing about the unfathomable grace and mercy of God, that it's oceans deep, but we don't recognize that so also is his justice. I was at um, a famous church in the United States and I was referring um, to Revelation 21 and I said, I said, do you understand that God created the lake of fire? Do you understand that God it says this is what it says about Jesus in Colossians. It says, by him and through him, all things were created, both things seen and unseen. Unthink- and, and uh, seen unthink- so, so God crafted the entire world. Let me tell you something. The devil didn't create a lake of fire that he would be sent to. God designed a place of judgment for his enemies. And we don't understand as an American church that God's merciful nature, which is extravagant, which we've spent the last 20 years in, is, has a, another side of it, and it's called the judgment of God, that it says in Psalms that God is in wrath every day. Now he's also in judgment, in grace every day towards those he loves in Christ Jesus. And there's a part of the nature of God that is exacting injustice because God is perfect. And we have forgotten that God is actually perfect. And if God's not perfect, but an amorphous blob, an amorphous love blob, then he doesn't care what we do. But if he's perfect and all-knowing and perfectly just, everything that we do as believers, unless we repent and turn our lives to Christ we will be judged for. Saul was called by God, First 1 Samuel 10.1. Then, then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head and kissed him. And he said, has not the Lord anointed you ruler of his inheritance? I remember my calling from God. I was about to turn 19 years old. I was 18. I was in this Bible school that my parents sent me to. It was like a prison camp at the time. <laughs> you know, like in the old days, they used to send criminals, like young criminals, to, to, to the military school or like, or, or the Marines or the Navy when they were bad. My parents did that, the Christian version of that. <laughs> I was a bad kid. I was bad. And they sent me to... Um, They sent me to Bible military school, truly. I was so bad that I was, I mean, of of drugs and stupidity and all that stuff. But also, I was failing the class in community college, the class where to find the buildings on campus. I was failing that class. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back for my parents. They're like, you're done for. You are going to hell if you can't pass this class. (laughs) And so I remember expressly um, trying to kick against the goads which is what Jesus says to Paul, he says, he's like, I'm, why are you fighting, why are you fighting against my calling, and I'm, I remember, it's 2000, it was the year 2000, we had just crossed over the border, it was January of the year 2000, and a man was preaching, and it was one of those messages that were, it was just for me, have you ever been in a service like that, it was actually not for the other 2000 persons, it was literally for me, and I, want to, I just want to say something as a caveat. If you're walking in righteousness before God, this shouldn't make you feel guilty. You should just say, whoa, God is big. That's what you should say. If you're not walking in righteousness before God, you should be scared. You should say, God, am I walking rightly before you? Please examine my heart. And the guy stood up there and he gave this message and he said, it was from the book of Esther. And Mordecai goes to Esther and Mordecai says, Perhaps you have been born for such a time as this to stand before kings and rulers and shift the destiny of nations and save your people. And it was like this stirring in my heart. I remember the man saying, then there's exactly a call of God like that on some of you today, and I knew it was me. And he said after that, Mordecai says after this, he said, but if you refuse... Relief and deliverance will arise for another place, but please know this, that you and your house will not be spared. And I remember him saying this, that was the other part that struck me. He said, I don't care if you're a pastor's kid, I happen to be one, you will not be delivered if you do not follow the plan and call of God. You don't get grandfathered into the kingdom of heaven god has no grandchildren he only has sons and daughters it doesn't matter what your parents did it doesn't matter how good they were it matters how you stand today before a mighty and just god whose found the foundations of his throne are just justice and righteousness so i prayed this prayer and i said um lord I said, Lord, oh, this is funny because I, was, I didn't really care about the being destroyed part. Because when you're 18, you think you're going to live for all time. You know, remember that? Anybody remember that? They're like, I'm immortal. What are you talking about? I'm a super saiyan. That was for my son. He's into super saiyans these days. Um, I said this, I, but I was really like, I, the guy said, like, there's this incredible call. And I said, what if God has an incredible call for me? And, and, and I I." I don't take that path because that path, whatever it is, will be so much better than the path I plan. Even if I plan a path and everything goes perfectly, that will be garbage compared to God's plan. And I intuitively knew that. And so I got on my knees and I prayed deeply. And for the first time, I gave my life fully to Jesus and I say fully with a caveat, and, and, and this was the prayer I prayed. I said, God, I'm giving you my entire life. I, I don't know how to do it, and I will crash, but I will crash my way toward you. It was as, seer, as sincere a prayer as my heart could at the time muster up. And it was sincere at the time. And it's okay to crash when you're a kid. It's okay if you're learning to ride a bicycle in the cul-de-sac, it's okay to crash. But when you're in the game and you're riding alongside the highway and you're an adult, if you crash, you may die. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's okay to crash when you're a little kid. It's the time to crash. It's appropriate. You learn what it is to crash. You learn to be nervous about crashing and to not ride wild on ice and to make sure you're going the appropriate speed and all of the constructs of gravity and motion are on your side. But if you don't learn how to not crash by the time you get to adulthood, you can kill yourself. And a prayer that I prayed when I was an 18-year-old that has been with me for 20 years has not always served me well. Because as a believer, we cannot keep saying to God, it's okay if I keep crashing. Because at some point, we may die. And pastors fall from grace, and they steal money, and they fall into sin, and they commit adultery, and thousands fall away from the gospel because they thought it was okay to crash. And everybody's like, oh, bless you, pastor. You're a hero. No, you're not a hero. You're not a hero. I sense sometimes as people, we have a very interesting church. We have like, we have very strong truth people and we have very strong Charismatic spirit people, and oftentimes the spirit people will say, "But I had an encounter with God. or I got a prophetic word, or I I I, I prophesied before, or I prayed for something, and, and somebody got touched or saved or healed, and so I'm okay. I'm fine. God is with me. I just think it's so incredible that it says in First Samuel ten ten about Saul when. He and the servant arrived at Gibeah. A profession of prophets met him. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and he joined them in their prophecy. And Jesus actually repeats this in Matthew chapter 7. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my father. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not drive out demons, God? And they'll say, just like Hosea, it's me, you know me. And he'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You know it's crazy about what's crazy about, about Saul is, I mean, it's crazy about David that like the egregious level of his sin is like murdering a guy that loves you deeply and desperately and stealing his wife. I mean, Saul like he does he does a, a sacrifice when he's not supposed to like that's not that's not cool like you shouldn't do that. You know, he God tells him to kill the enemy and he kills like 90% of the enemy and leaves some of them like that's a bad idea. That's not cool. David kills a dude and steals his wife and sleeps with her. And you're like, well, what's the, what's the, what's the heart issue here, God? Because, like, if I don't understand the, God's way and his nature, I say God's unjust, it's unfair, it's not right, he's not a good God. And he's actually, in fact, perfectly just and perfectly right. And this is the heart of Saul. First Samuel 15, 20. The prophet comes to him and says, what are you doing? And this is what he says. But I did obey the Lord. Saul said, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. And Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he delights in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as kings. Saul is called by God and walks for a season with God. Matthew chapter 22, and it says this, And the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, and he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refuse to come. Then he sent more servants, verse 4, and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. The oxen, the fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. And then the king came in to see the guests. And he noticed a man was there. The king came to see the guests that were in his house. These are not people outside of the kingdom of God. And he asked them, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. And the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many have been called, but few are chosen. He showed up to the feast, and he was unwilling to change his garments. And I think we as a church have a lot of people feasting on the grace of God, his quote-unquote non-contingent favor, which is not true. And they're feasting on his grapes, but they refuse to change their clothes. And it says this in Jude chapter 12, these people are blemishes at your feasts. It's echoing the parable that Jesus told eating with you, with, with you without the slightest qualm. They're eating at the table with no sense of humility. I can eat of sin and death and wipe my face and turn and eat with you. And it says this, they are clouds without rain blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, uprooted and dead twice. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, they are wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness is returned is reserved forever these are people that are at the feasts of the people in the kingdom of heaven. And the, and, the, and the and the king said tie him hand and foot and throw him outside. I think, I think I wonder the question, like, what does is, what is clothing have to do with the person being accepted or not accepted? Well, the idea symbolically of clothing is the things that I can see. You know, God can see the heart, right? He can see the intimate places. When we wear clothes, we're showing people how we look or a, a part of the representation of us. But no one can see a clothed person's intimate self, only God. But God's saying, I look at the heart, but I also see your deeds, what you're wearing. In the churches, to the, the books to the churches of Revelations, Revelations chapter 3 and 4, of the seven churches, six of them, Jesus begins by saying this, I know your deeds. He doesn't say, I know your heart. He says, I know your deeds, how you're clothed, what you're wearing, what you actually look like. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, and idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Because of these things, the vulture sits atop the church. Because of these things, the trumpet is blasted. You used to walk these ways, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self. When we come to Christ, and we're ex- this is how crazy the blood of Jesus is it's independent of what we did, his blood is sufficient to forgive us for everything. If we come to him and repent, Jesus said in Matthew, he said, it says everywhere he went, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a two part formula. Part one is repentance. Part two is that then the kingdom of heaven will come. We're like, no, 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 no. It's not repent. It's just call upon the name of the Lord. Well, Israel is calling upon the name of the Lord in Hosea chapter eight. And they're saying, Lord, you you know me. We're on a a name-to-name basis. Me, Israel, I know you. And the Lord's saying, I set a vulture over you because you're a rotting corpse. And it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. And, and, And when we're invited to the table and the king comes, he's looking to see if we're clothed. What do we close with? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive the grievances you have against one another. Forgiveness is not something we choose to do. If you're in this game, you forgive. That's it. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And overall, these virtues put on love with binds us together in perfect unity. Again, it's echoed in Ephesians chapter 4. Put off your former way of life and your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitfulness and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self that's granted to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of grace grants us righteousness by jesus christ and so the apostle is saying do not wear the filthy garments anymore verse 4 um excuse me verse 16 it says that the tormenting spirit was sent to to, to king saul i'm gonna i want to read you one of the one of the um churches of revelation Revelation chapter three is about Sardis. Sardis is an area of one of the seven churches in Revelation. They are an, an area primarily um, notarized by commerce. They're the first city in the ancient world to use pure gold as a method of trans of economic transactions. So they're really known for wealth and having stuff. Having and usually when you have stuff, you have it together on an approximate level. It's usually how it goes, which is why. The rich young ruler has such a hard time with Jesus and why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to go through the, 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 to, into the kingdom of heaven than it is a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Not just because of riches, because generally people that have wealth feel like they have it all together. And they feel like their wealth is an affirmation by God that they do have it, in fact, altogether. And this is Sardis. Sardis believes they have it all together. And he says, I know your works. He doesn't say, I know your faith. He doesn't say, I remember that time you said the prayer and raised your hand. He says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Hosea chapter 8. The vulture is seated above you. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still, yet you still have a few names, the Sardis people who have not soiled their garments, who are walking in this gift that we've been given through Christ empowered by the Holy spirit to actually be able to be empowered to walk in righteousness you know, works righteousness is that I struggle and do, and God accepts me. Grace righteousness is that I'm saved by Jesus. I'm forgiven for every horrific deed I do, did, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I walk as a new creation in Christ Jesus. I walk. I don't just think or believe. The great lie is that salvation is all about what's only happening inside your heart. Jesus does not say to any of the churches, I know what's happening inside your heart. He says, I know your deeds. He says, yet you, a few uh, remain, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name from the book of life. What is the connotation? The connotation of the name never being blotted from the Lamb's book of life is that a name can be blotted from the Lamb's book of life. Do you know Jonathan Edwards? Have have you guys heard that name Jonathan Edwards before? Jonathan Edwards preached a message um, in the beginning of our nation called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That message spread around the nation and it created the great awakening. It was the fire that lit the great awakening. And Jonathan Edwards said that when we're walking in direct Express disobedience, not believers that love Jesus and make mistakes because it's about direction. It's not about perfection. Okay, it's not perfection. It's direction towards the heart of God. And he said that. But those that walk in, in blatant disobedience to God or walking on a slippery path and that it is by the grace of God that they do not slip off the path into their death. And Romans says exactly that. Romans says the kindness of our God leads us to repentance. But the the context of the scripture says his kindness allows us to stay living on the earth even though we're in direct disobedience. It's Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 1 says like the world has gone haywire, but God allows us by his mercy to exist to turn and find him. We have have recontextualized that verse in the the church, and we've said the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That means he's always kind all the time. That That is literally academic example of taking a verse out of context and saying what it doesn't actually say. And it says the one who conquers will be clothed in white, and I will never blot his name out. I will confess his name before my father and the angels. He has, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches. So, so, so Saul is committing sin before God, and he doesn't repent. And this is the crux. This is the real issue, believers. It's not that we don't sin. First John said, "If any man says he is without sin, he is a liar." James says, even if we break the smallest sins, then we are guilty of breaking the entirety of the commandments. It's not being without sin. It's about walking in a consistent pattern that is out of accordance with the way of God. And Hebrews 10, 26 says, if we deliberately go on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for our sins remains but only a fearful expectation of a judgment of a raging fire that consumes God's adversaries. And anyone who rejects the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think one deserves to be punished who is trampled on the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and insulted the spirit of grace. Can, can you notice just this clause here that it says profane the blood of God, of, excuse me, profaned the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. The blood of Jesus is the sanctifying agent in our life. It's why we do communion. That's why I think communion is incredibly important. It's why I think it's insane that most of the Protestant church has done away with communion except once every six weeks. Because the scripture actually says through confession and repentance we're regenerated and turned into the image and likeness of God not by white-knuckling it. If you white-knuckle it, you won't get it because it's by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, not by desperate striving to prove yourself perfect. A.W. Tozer said, the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal retribution, and every calm and reasonable man will accept the doctrine, or if he rejects it, he will reject the Bible along with it. The man who will not believe in hell must surrender his right to believe in heaven as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Sanctification is an ongoing process in our lives. Sanctification doesn't demand perfection. It offers us righteousness. Sanctification doesn't say, I'm, I have the whip at your back. Sanctification is, I'm, I'm giving you an invitation to live in righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the problem is, for most believers, is just sheer, plain, old, stupid idolatry. Idolatry is the sin that Israel over and over and over again falls over into. And stumbles and crashes. And idolatry is the thing that we often say, God, all of your stuff is really important, but this thing really for me in my life is the most important thing. You know, it's weird because idolatry can be something innocuous that doesn't make sense. Idolatry can be something that everyone else is allowed to do, but God has said to you, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to touch this. I don't want you to commune with this. I think the the story of the of the rich young ruler is so fascinating because God he comes to God and he says what must I do Jesus to have eternal life? And Jesus runs through the 10 commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Honor your mother and father, don't steal, and he does all the commandments and and the rich young ruler says All these things I have done since I was a child. And Jesus says, there's one thing that I want you to do that's not in the commandments expressly, but it's this thing that your heart idolizes above me. And he says, take all your money, your greatest idol, and give it to the poor, and then you will have eternal life. I just, I love the heart of Jesus in this scripture. And it says, looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said, one thing you lack. Like even the guy in the midst of his idolatry, Jesus sees his heart and says, you, you have, you're almost there. But there's, a, there's, a, there's an entity in your life that you're subjugating yourself to that is not me. And do you know there may be someone here today that idolizes money? And do you know that Jesus may say to you, you love money more than me, and you're not coming into my kingdom unless you get rid of that idol. We're like, no, 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 no. This is like, I'm a prosperity gospel. Money is always a blessing from God every time. That's literally not what the scripture says. Literally says finances can be a deceit That make many go astray. It's exactly what the scripture says, approximately. And it says, it says, one thing you lack. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. It's not about money in and of itself being evil. It has nothing to, that's not the point of the story. Shallow analysis will tell you that's the point of the story. The point of the story is idolatry. The point of the story is that Jesus shows up in this man's life and is granting him access to eternity and he would rather have his cash and not have eternity. Verse 16, um, excuse me, verse 22, it says, the man was deeply dismayed at the words and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. I believe we live in a church culture in the United States where we have a church that's full of people that have idols of wealth fame power success and they would rather have those things than have God the crazy thing is like wealth fame power success notoriety uh, like those are all actual blessings when you read Genesis chapter 12 in the context of right relationship with God, but when they're idolized, they're all curses that stop us from entering His home. And um, I think the other big issue for for New Yorkers is alcohol. It's a blessing, you know. The Scripture literally says it's a blessing. It says that in Ecclesiastes, wine brings joy and gladness to the heart. But New Yorkers use it as a substitute for finding peace in the presence of God. New Yorkers displace God in their life and put alcohol on the top of that mountain, the place they go to for peace, the place they go to comfort. And they say, God, I love you with everything in my heart, except when it gets really hard, I do not go to you. I go to my real God. My real God is in a bottle, and it gives me real delivery immediately. And it's another like it's another one of these things like finances that are like this is a blessing if it's contextualized right if it's in the hierarchical order where God is at the top of it and of all of these blessings in our life if Jesus comes to us and he says will you lay this down for me forever what would you say. It says this of, um, of Saul. It says, The attendant said to him, Find someone who plays well and bring him. And so David came and entered Saul's service, and he liked him very much. Verse, six, excuse me, verse 16 says, Let our Lord command his servants to search for someone who can play, and he will play. And then the evil spirit from God, when he comes upon you, it'll make you feel okay. And I feel like we in the church, are walking in sin, and we come to church, and the music is playing, and we get a sense of respite, and we feel like we're okay with God because of how we feel. David was someone who worshipped God deeply and wonderfully. And we have a church that excels in music in the United States of America, and I wonder if part of it is because people are tormented because of the sin they're in, and it gives them a moment of respite. It gives them a moment of peace, but as soon as that song is gone and as soon as they walk back out the door, the demonic spirits that influence their life are right back. And God is a God of freedom. He's a God of deliverance. He came to set the captive free. That's why he came. He came to break the chains of bondage, and sin, and sickness, and suicide, and death, and disease, and shame. But it doesn't come without us making hard decisions. It doesn't come without us really repenting. And I had a dream last night after I was preparing my message and in my dream I was standing in front of a group of pastors and we were talking together and we sat down and we were praying together. And I haven't been dreaming really vividly in the last couple of years but this was a pretty intense dream and the pastor said, I just felt like a word from God that there are a lot of pastors in the United States of America that are in sin, and it's mortal sin. And they will not go to heaven. They will go to hell. And they believe because they're a pastor, they will not. Jesus never says in the Bible, I see that you're a pastor. He never says, I see that you go to a really living church. I see the people that you, who, who you're around are really alive. He looks at each of our hearts individually and says, Where are you, son? Where are you, daughter? And if you're found in his grace and you're walking in repentance and you're saying, God, see if there's any wicked way in me, if there's anything that I'm holding above you in this order and tear it from my life, God, let me not be a Saul who says, No, I'm good. There's nothing here, God, I'm perfect. Because perhaps if I'm that person, I'm on a slippery slope. And God, let your spotlight search my heart that I would be clothed in white and that I would grow like Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Do you know you can grow in favor with God? Do you know that? You know, it's not like once you're saved, we all get the same equal amount of favor and that's it. You can actually grow in favor with God himself. And one of the ways we do that is saying, God, I receive your forgiveness. And and I, by the power of your spirit, I I will walk clothed in righteousness. And the areas of my life, my filthy mouth. Does anyone have a filthy mouth here in the church? Because I do sometimes. And I was thinking Saturday night. Friday night, I was talking to a buddy on the phone, and I just had a filthy mouth, and I woke up feeling so ashamed of myself. And in, 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 our, in our culture, like, it, that doesn't even matter. But when the scripture's talking about taking off garments that are filthy, it's one of the things that's mentioned. Are we, do we have church members that are, are alcoholics, and they're just like, no, I'm not, it's not me, not me. I I have to drink a, a half a bottle of wine every night before I go to sleep, but it's not me. Uh, what, 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 are we being honest with ourselves as believers? Because it's Jesus' deep desire that we walk in freedom, as sons and daughters that are beyond reproach. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, friends, because I certainly am not but it means we're directing our heart towards Jesus and saying, God, shine the spotlight on me. How can we have a righteous nation if we don't have a righteous church? How can we expect, expect blessing on our country if, if there's no way we can have blessing even our own churches? We have a nation that went from prayer in schools to parading sexual immorality in the streets. How did that happen? It is my assumption The majority, the vast majority of the reason is because the church fell away from walking with God closely and knowing him. And he said to those that weren't working, as he's called them to work, I do not know you. That is the litmus test, friends. It is not feelings that we have in the spirit. It is not encounters. It's not prophetic words. It's are we walking like Jesus Christ? Stand with me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness. And by kindness, we thank you for shining the spotlight on sons and daughters in this place because you love them because you desire for them to live in a, in a garden life, in a relationship with an incredible God. Lord, those areas of our life that we've idolized, God, the things in our life that you've had your hand on, even for years, God. Lord, would you, would you let us be a people? Would you give us the power by your spirit to turn our hearts fully and wholly to you. God, that we wouldn't be bound by chains of our own pride, of our own addiction, God. But we would allow you, Jesus, to be our deliverer. And not just in name or in word, God, but in deed. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know Him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org.